I would like to invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Psalm 137. Psalm 137, it's been in the works a long time to begin a series on the, uh, the letter of James. Uh, and no, not knowing, beginning this week, not knowing where we were going to be today, uh, or sorry, beginning last week, not knowing where we would be today, I thought it'd be uh, uh, fitting to do at least one last song uh, before we jump into uh, James's letter. And so the plan is to begin James next Sunday. Uh, but as I said, we'll, we'll do one last psalm today, Psalm 137. And so let us, uh, let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy word, Psalm 137, beginning in verse 1. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And even as we find portions of your word disturbing, O Lord, we pray that you would grant to us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that Christ has done for us. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word today, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, the exile is over. No longer are we confined to our own living rooms to have to watch sermons on social media, but we are able to gather together in corporate worship, which means that we have entered into the heavenly Mount Zion, and we are in the presence of the triune God, in the presence of innumerable angels, of the souls that, made, uh, that have been made perfect, and of Jesus, the mediator of the new and better covenant. The exile from church is over. Well, of course, we're not in our own church. We're in a different one. Of course, not everyone could make it today because of the drive or for health reasons. Of course, it's uncertain when, we're able, when we are going to be able to get back to our typical meeting place. But even when we do get back to Palisades or wherever else ends up being our permanent uh, meeting place, even if we were to get our own building, let's say one on the bluff with a 180 degree view of the ocean, that'd be nice. Even if we were able to get our own building and have the sign Trinity Presbyterian on there, we would still in one sense be in exile. For as long as we are in on this earth, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are sojourners and exiles. 
We know that from the New Testament, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You see, the reason why we as Christians are exiles in this world is because, as Paul tells us in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So although you may be a citizen of Dana Point or Mission Viejo, you may be a citizen of the state of California and of the United States of America, In a real sense, your true citizenship is in heaven, and therefore, uh, as long as you live your life here on earth, you are a sojourner and an exile. And so as I read this psalm today, which is a psalm of the exiles in Babylon, we find that we have a lot in common with those crying out to the Lord in our passage today. We, too, have to wrestle with the idea of singing the Lord's song in a foreign land. And so we might wonder, what is it that we have in common with these people who sing this song, with the Israelites of old, sitting by the waters of Babylon? Well, for a bit of context, Psalm 137 uh, finds itself uh, following the Psalms of Ascents. Now, we actually covered a a couple Psalms of Ascents the last couple Sundays, if you were able to tune in. The Psalms of Ascents were the songs that traditionally, traditionally the Israelites would sing as they made their way, their pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. And after those Psalms of Ascents, we have a number of Psalms of thanksgiving and praise for all the Lord's works. And so this part of the Psalter is a decidedly upbeat part of the Psalter. But right smack dab in the middle of all these songs of praise and thanksgiving, we find this lament, this very dark and perhaps the most disturbing of all the psalms we find in Scripture, talking about taking little ones and dashing them against the stone. What horrible imagery. How on earth can we as New Covenant believers sing a psalm such as this? How are we even to make sense of this? Well, we need to understand the context. You see, this is a psalm of lament for the Babylonian exile. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and his troops marched into Judea and laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. And this was, uh, this was the Lord's doing as the ultimate result of Israel's disobedience. Incurring upon them the curse of the law, God allowed his people to be overthrown by a foreign power. And those who were not brutally slaughtered by the Babylonians were scattered, and many of them were taken into exile in Babylon, which is clearly the setting of our psalm today. It's very clear. It says, we were by the rivers or the waters of Babylon. And so the, the emphasis here is on its location. You may notice in, verse, in, in, in the first three verses of our psalm, that word there is mentioned. And, and there's emphasis in the Hebrew. There we sat down. There we wept. There our tormentors required of us a song. You see, the, the idea is that they are in a strange land. 
They're away from their homeland. They are in a foreign land. And the emphasis there is that they are exiles away from land, from their, from their homeland. But it wasn't homesickness that bothered them. It wasn't that they missed their own homes or their own pillow or their own favorite local restaurant. No, what they missed most and what caused this lament to come up in their hearts is, is that they remembered Zion, the city of the living God. Zion, uh, which was another name for the Temple Mount, to which the tribes would go up to worship the Lord. And so it, was, it, it, it wasn't the, the familiarity of home that they missed primarily. It was the privilege that they had to gather before the Lord in corporate worship that had been revoked. And when they thought about that, the sad fact that they could never, or at least not for the foreseeable future, be able to ascend the hill of the Lord and worship him in corporate worship, that's what causes this lament to come up. And so in a real sense, our psalm is the, is, the re, is the exact opposite of Psalm 122, which we just sang. I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. No, this has been taken away. All of those glories, the peace that you pray for in Jerusalem, that's gone. And so now the exiles lament when they remember Zion. And they hang up their lyres. The lyre, of course, was a stringed instrument that was used in worship. They're hanging them up on the willows. Why? Well, because they're not using them. They're not singing songs of praise. And yet, to add insult to injury, their Babylonian captors were demanding that they play their music. Now, they demanded this not for their own edification or for their own entertainment, but so that they might mock them. They said, sing the songs of Zion. Songs of Zion, of course, are songs that that extol the glories of the city of God, like Psalm 122 that we sang, or the familiar Psalm 46. And there's several others, uh, upbeat songs that are extolling the glories of the city of God. And the Babylonians wanted to hear the Israelites sing that so that they could deride them and mock them and laugh in their face because they know what they did to their city. They laid it to waste. And so they say, how can we do that? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You see, what made the city of Jerusalem great was the fact that God had chosen to dwell there. But now the Lord's house, which characterized the whole city. Remember in Psalm 122, it was characterized by two houses. The house of the Lord and the house of David where thrones were set. Now both of those houses lay in ruins. So they say, how on earth can we sing the glorious when the house of the Lord is destroyed? They're prevented from singing the Lord's praise. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean that somehow the Lord is absent. It doesn't mean that God cannot hear their prayers or their cries. The Israelites knew that God was everywhere. There was nowhere you could go from his presence. And they continued to pray to God, the Babylonian exiles. We see this in the example of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we read that he prayed to the Lord and he opened the window facing Jerusalem so that he might address his prayers to God. He knew that God heard no matter where he was. 
Even our psalm itself being sung by the waters of Babylon meant that they knew that God heard. And yet, as we've seen in the past, it's, it's helpful to be reminded, as far as the Old Testament worship goes, location matters. There was only one place that God had chosen to make his name be known. There was only one place where the Israelites gathered together for corporate worship, and that place was Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was in ruins. And so since location does matter in the Old Covenant, they emphasize, since, and since location does matter, and since being away from that location can cause memories to fade, we see in the psalm, the psalmist resolves to never forget the city of God. And he does this in the form of an oath. Now, an oath is a, is a solemn act where, whereby one, somebody swears to do something, holding God as witness. And then it says, if I do not do these things, they invoke upon themselves various curses. We call this self-imprecatory. You invoke curses upon yourself if you fail to live up to your oath. And so to show how just how serious he is and how much he means it, that he will never forget the city of Jerusalem. He will never forget what it stands for. It, it, it will never be anything but his highest joy. He calls God his witness and he invokes curses upon himself. So often we we focus upon the curses that are at the end of the psalm, and rightly so, because they're so disturbing. But it's important to keep in mind that before the curses are named upon the enemies of God's people, we see God's people invoking upon themselves curses if they forget God and his city. And yet it's important that they're doing this because they're going to be in Babylon for some time. Seventy years to be exact. You see, according to the prophet, the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah told his people that the exile in Babylon would last for 70 years. And actually, the Lord had Jeremiah write a letter to the exiles, giving them instructions about how they ought to conduct themselves while in Babylon. You see, there were false prophets who were telling God's people who had been brought to Babylon, they were, the false prophets were saying, don't get comfortable, rent, don't own. Uh, you're not going to be there for very long. It's going to be maybe a couple months, a year at most, but you're going to get back to Jerusalem, don't worry. And God said, I did not tell those prophets to say that. But his true prophet, Jeremiah, wrote a letter to them, and he said this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its city, or sorry, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In other words, don't get comfortable. Go about normal life as you typically would. Get married, have children, plant gardens, eat the produce. You're going to be there for a while. But then the Lord also said, after 70 years, I will restore you. And he comforts them and he says, I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for peace and not for evil. And so there's a word of comfort 
but also a warning that this is going to last for a while. 70 years is a long time. Imagine living somewhere for 70 years. It would be pretty easy to forget about the glories of Jerusalem. So that's why we see the psalmist here swearing an oath before the Lord. If I forget Jerusalem, if I do not constantly keep it as my highest joy, then may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth and may my right hand forget its skill. Those are some pretty creative curses. Uh, the, the way it's translated here in, in, our, uh, in our ESV version seems to indicate that what the psalmist is saying is, may I, not, may I never be able to sing the Lord's praise again. Uh, thinking of using the right hand to play the lyre and, and using his tongue to declare the Lord's praise. And perhaps that is what, uh, what he is, the, the point of this curse. Uh, perhaps also since the right hand and the tongue are used most frequently by people, perhaps what he's saying is, may I cease to function as a normal human being. But since man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it's it really, it, it, we, we shouldn't have to choose between them. It's as if he's saying, may I cease to exist. May the very purpose of my existence cease if I do not remember Jerusalem. Well, after swearing an oath that he will never forget, he then, in verse 7, calls upon the Lord to not forget. He wants the Lord to remember certain things about certain people. And what he wants the Lord to remember and not forget is what their enemies had done to them. First up, we have the Edomites in verse 7. Now, the Edomites, you may recall, are descendants of Esau. So we have Jacob and Esau. The descendants of Jacob, of course, were the Israelites. The descendants of his twin brother Esau were the Edomites. And actually, the Edomites and the Israelites had an interesting history as they lived uh, in close proximity. The Edomites dwelled in sort of southeast of the Dead Sea, that sort of that region uh, uh, down in the southern part of Israel there. And the Edomites uh, had a rocky relationship with the Israelites. The Israelites actually were commanded not to hate them. God says in the law, don't abhor the Edomites, for they are your brothers. And yet we might say they were frenemies at best. They had a very tenuous relationship, and yet the Israelites, for the most part, were dominant over the Edomites. The Edomites lived under Israel's thumb, fulfilling the prophecy that the older should serve the younger. And so here we see the Edomites jumping at the opportunity and and relishing this opportunity to gloat over the Israelites in their downfall. They became the cheering section for the Babylonians. As the Babylonians marched in, the Edomites stood by with their pom-poms, rejoicing at the downfall and demise of their distant cousins. The chant was, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Knock down, do not let a single stone stand on top of another. The prophet Obadiah spoke of this, of the Edomites, In a condemnation of them, he said, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And so the Edomites sided with the Babylonians 
and thus are bringing upon themselves the very same curses that ultimately would come upon Babylon. And so that's why the psalmist says, Lord, don't forget what the Edomites did. Don't forget what they were saying when your city was being destroyed. Now, the psalmist in verse 8 turns his attention to the main perpetrators of the violence committed against them. He speaks of the Babylonians. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. It's pretty remarkable that he, that the psalmist can say this at this point, because at the time of writing, uh, Babylon was experiencing, the Babylonian Empire was at the height of its power and glory. They, They wouldn't imagine ever being destroyed because they were the most powerful nation on earth. And yet the psalmist in singing this lament knows that all of that is temporary. He knows that eventually the Babylonians will be destroyed and and there would come a time when they too would be overthrown. And he finds that comforting. He finds that comforting. We see that same type of comfort expressed in the book of Daniel, another book that talks about the Babylonian captivity. And and Daniel sees this vision in, in chapter seven of all of these wild beasts And these beasts that come one after the other all represent uh, the nations of the earth. One nation overtaking another in power and dominance. And yet each and every one of these beasts, we read that their reign, their dominion is temporary. And yet in contrast to these beasts that are repeated, whose dominion are temporary, we read of one coming like the son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So that's the words of comfort that Daniel, and even in our passage today, is speaking to the exiles. The, the reign of Babylon is temporary. The reign of God is Forever, And we know that the Babylonian Empire was destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great in 539 BC, even as scripture itself, the prophet Isaiah, foretold. And so it's as if when, when the psalmist is, is pinning the words of Psalm 137, he's reflecting upon these prophecies that he knows it's temporary. He knows that Babylon is doomed to be destroyed, and he claims those promises of God by faith. And then, claiming those promises, knowing that God would send an army to destroy the the Babylonians, he pronounces a blessing upon the one who pays them back. A blessing upon the Medo-Persian Empire, which was to come. Now, this is not to say that the Medes had pure motives when they overthrew Jerusalem. It's not to say that they did everything in an upright manner. No, their motives were entirely sinful. Their motives, as Calvin said, were ambition, insatiable covetousness, and unprincipled rivalry. You see, that is what, the, what was going on in the Medes' mind when they were overthrowing Jerusalem, or sorry, Babylon, but God used them to accomplish his holy and just purposes. And so while they meant it for evil, God 
meant it for good. And so that's why he could pronounce a blessing upon them because they were achieving God's most holy, pure, righteous, and just actions in repaying the Babylonians for what they did. But how are we at this point as new covenant believers, how are we to reconcile this, this this blessing pronounced upon the one who pays them back with the words of our Lord who said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Can we as new covenant believers sing the words of Psalm 137? Because clearly he's pronouncing a curse upon the Babylonians, not to mention the Edomites. Well, I think so. And the reason why is because what we find in this pronouncement, this blessing upon the one who pays you back, is ultimately a cry of vengeance. It is a reflection of that that thing that is on the heart of every man. The desire for justice the desire for those who commit heinous crimes and wicked acts, that they get what's coming to them. And we recognize that God is the one who owns vengeance. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Which means it's possible to be angry and not sin. There is such a thing as righteous, holy anger. We know so because the Lord has holy, righteous anger. The old fan, the fancy word is indignation. And we can have that too when we see heinous crimes, horrible acts of violence. And our heart just longs for vengeance, longs for the perpetrators of those crimes to get what's coming to them. Well, of course, there's also the danger of letting our anger get the better of us. And there's such thing, there's such thing as holy anger, but there's also such thing as sinful anger. And I think we've seen examples of both in the past few weeks. Righteous anger, desire for vengeance and justice, which is good, but we've also seen sinful anger. Of course, we as God's people need to be characterized by righteous anger, being angry, but do not sin, but recognizing that the Lord is a God of vengeance. As Psalm 94 says, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Psalm, or, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Sounds pretty similar to Psalm 137. Blessed is the one who pays you back what you did to us. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cry for vengeance is holy and good. And we know that because not only does God desire that, not only does God think that that is just, but we see this even in the book of Revelation. The souls who were under the altar, those who had been martyred for their testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, having been made perfectly righteous and sanctified in heaven, this is their words. 
They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And we read that white robes were given to them, and they were told to wait a little while longer while the rest of the numbers of those who would be martyred, that's all us, join their numbers. And yet you continue reading the book of Revelation, and that is precisely what you see in answer to their prayer, vengeance, avenging the blood of those who have been shed. You see, the New Testament does not tell us to let let it go because vengeance is bad. It says, leave it to the wrath of God because vengeance is his. He claims it as his own unique property. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. Notice he doesn't say, I'm going to pay you back. No, he knows that God will do it. And he pronounces a blessing upon the one who carries it out. That's exactly what the psalmist is doing here. And yet when we come to the last verse of the psalm, maybe we kind of wish he ended in verse 8. Maybe we think at this point, You've gone a little too far. You went from righteous anger to sinful anger. When he says the words, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones, that's a word for babies, and dashes it against the rock. How disturbing. Truly disturbing. And I don't think that we should try to sugarcoat this, to try to soften it. Some interpreters will try to be allegorical with it. Well, that's not what he meant. No, that is exactly what he meant. And it is meant to be disturbing because judgment is disturbing. When people get what they deserve, that's disturbing. But that is what the Lord wants. But why babies? Why is he singling out these little innocent children, seemingly innocent children, right? We know they're one in sin. But why? They didn't do anything to deserve this. Well, Because that's exactly what the Babylonians had just done to them. This was typically what, was, what would go on in the ancient world when kingdoms would overthrow other kingdoms. They involved brutal war tactics. Terrible. What we, what we characterize today as crimes against humanity or war crimes waging war upon the next generation, taking children and throwing them against the rock. That's exactly what the Babylonians did to the Israelites. And yet we see this fits what we call the law of retaliation, the fact that the punishment must fit the crime. We see this characterized in the law, an eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And this is precisely what the prophet Isaiah said would happen to the Babylonians as he predicted their downfall centuries before. He says in Isaiah chapter 13, of the Babylonians, when the Medes come and destroy them, he says, whatever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. There's a description of the downfall of Babylon. And so you see here, the psalmist here, as he's lamenting, he's not making this up. This is what he saw with his own eyes, and yet this is what he knew that the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, said would happen to the Babylonians 
as he, as the Lord inflicted vengeance upon them. Perpetrators of war crimes will have war crimes committed against them in an act of God's justice. And yet as we think about God's justice, I think it's important as we conclude to be reminded of the fact that every sin that is ever committed, every sin that is ever has been committed, or every sin that ever will be committed before the coming of the Lord, every single one of those sins will be punished. God's justice demands that, and there will be perfect punishment for each and every sin ever committed, either at the last day, which our psalm is a reflection of, or at the cross. And that should give us comfort. It should give us comfort that every sin will be punished, either at the last day or has been at the cross. For us, those who flee to Christ for refuge, we know that we need not fear the judgment of God. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, as Psalm 103 tells us. Why? Because he's punished those sins on the cross. And so as we think of this heinous act of taking a little one and dashing it against the stone, remember that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God dashed his son against the stone for us and for our salvation. And yet also we might find comfort as God's people, and in particular in the suffering we experience in this life as believers. When we experience suffering and injustice in this world, or when we witness violent, heinous acts committed, uh, committed against our fellow mankind, and that desire for vengeance comes up. And sometimes in this world, well, all the time in this world, we never see perfect justice. No one ever gets truly what they deserve in this world. But at the last day, we know that all wrongs will be made right. All vengeance will be poured out because God owns it. And so as we sing the words of this song, as we reflect upon the words of Psalm 137, and we ask, can we as New Covenant believers sing this song with such disturbing language? Keep in mind that what sets us apart from Old Testament saints is not a desire for vengeance and perfect justice. No, that is the same from Old Testament into New. We all ought to desire vengeance and justice because that's a reflection of God's unchanging nature. But what does set us apart from these saints sitting by the waters of Babylon and weeping is that we can sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. We get the answer to the question in verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They can't do it. Why? Because they're away from Jerusalem. They're away from Mount Zion. They're hanging up their lyres. They refuse to sing. And yet us, who are sojourners in exiles, in this present evil age, we have one foot in heaven. We have heavenly Mount Zion coming down to us in spirit and in truth. And so although we live in a foreign land, we sing the Lord's song with joy 
as we eagerly anticipate the day in which he will come, make all things new, punish all evildoers, and wipe every tear from our eye. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. For the world was condemned already. And we thank you that you took the curse of the law in our place. You took the punishment that each and every one of us deserved. And you paid for our sins. And we thank you also that you give us your spirit and watch over us in such a way that not a hair can fall from our head, even as we go about our earthly sojourn, living as strangers and exiles in this world. Thank you that our citizenship is in heaven. And we pray that you would direct our hearts and minds heavenward, where you are seated by the right hand of God. Give us strength, even this week, as we go about our daily lives, O oh Lord, may we live lives that are worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And we do pray, O oh Lord, that you would, uh, we, we thank you for this opportunity of gathering together today, but we do pray that you would enable us to find a, a, a more local, suitable location where all the saints might gather together. And we ask all this in your name.